Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. O God of all spirits and of all flesh, who have destroyed death and overcome the devil and given life to the world, grant, O Lord, of the souls of thy servants who have departed this life, that they repose in a place of light and a place of happiness and a place of peace where there is no pain, nor grief, nor sighing. And since thou art a gracious God and thou lovest mankind, forgive them every sin they have committed by thought, by word, or by deed. For there is not a man who lives and does not sin, and thou alone art without sin, and thy righteousness is everlasting. And we render glory to thee, to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Please welcome back Dr. Timothy O'Donnell. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of a man named Walter Hooper. Walter Hooper was an Anglican Christian who was in charge of the estate of C.S. Lewis. And uh, he was invited to have a 30-minute lunch with John Paul II. And so it was supposed to be a simple meal, wine, just a little pasta, nothing fancy, sat down, and the Pope looked at him and said, tell me about C.S. Lewis, all right? The lunch lasted for two hours, <laughs> two hours, talking about Lewis. Pope asking probing questions, very engaged in the thought, what kind of man he was. But at the end of that lunch, Hooper looked at the Pope and said, could I please have your blessing? Now, he's an Anglican Christian, but, you know, when you're in the presence of the Vicar of Christ, you're still affected by that, all right? And so he knelt down to receive his blessing. And John Paul started to pray over him and put his hands on his shoulders. And then Hooper said that he experienced at that moment an incredible weight a weight that he had never experienced in his life where he felt it was painful. He felt the bones in his body begin to be crushed as if there was this tremendous weight pressing down upon his body. He was so concerned that he, as he was kneeling, he looked down to see if he was still kneeling because he felt he was being pressed by this overbearing weight uh, into the floor. And then he felt this burning fire inside just sort of consuming. It was very difficult, very, very painful. He was perplexed. He did, was this, what was going on? And then he said he looked up into the eyes of the Holy Father, and he says the Holy Father had the exact same expression on his face that was on his face. And he said when he looked into his eyes, he saw this intense pain this intense pain, the same thing. And when he looked in the Holy Father's eyes, the Holy Father took his hands off, immediately off his shoulders, and said, I'm so sorry. I did not know that that would happen. Hooper, looking back on the incident, felt it was a special grace that was given that he experienced the weight, <laughs> the burden of the papal office that John Paul had assumed. An incredible weight. 
This story really resonated with me. It was told to me by Peter Crave to talk directly to Walter Hooper. And uh, I remember when I was given a blessing of going to his private mass early in the morning. We got up, we were taken, ushered into the private chapel, and he was already kneeling on the prie-dieu. Uh, this is about 30 minutes before the start of mass. And the moaning, the groaning, the sighing in front of the tabernacle. And it wasn't like this was just a physical thing. There was something else going on. And I'm just sitting there listening to this, preparing for mass. You really got the sense almost of a victimless soul, someone that had just absorbed so much of the suffering in the world. And of course, the beauty about Walter Hooper is shortly after this incident, you know what happened to him. He swam the Tiber. He became a Roman Catholic. <laughs> and when they asked him, why did you become a Catholic? He said, because I met Aslan. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of beauty and a lot of truth to that. Now, when we look at John Paul, I just want to start off with those two vignettes, because one gives us an insight into the man, the other the way in which he has impacted, I think, all of us in a profound way. When you investigate and study the history of the papacy, it's understandable you'd be somewhat reticent about making historical judgments about so recent a pontificate. I mean, even today, we're nine years removed from his death. But even today, the significance and the achievements of this pontificate that were worked out on such a vast scale, I think, simply cannot be denied. Anyone who's going to objectively look at what was achieved in this pontificate. He was an astounding man, seen by more human beings than any other person in the history of the world. More human beings saw this man than any other human being in the history of the world. Remember that over three million people attended his funeral. Imagine that. I went back and looked at a Lusservatore Romano where it talked about the massive turnout for the funeral of Paul VI. And they said 60,000 people, imagine 60,000 people coming to the funeral. Three million. And I remember when he was elected, I made a promise that I would come back to his funeral whenever that was. I didn't know it would be nearly 27 years later. But we did fly back. And I remember and I saw those lines. Some people waited, you know, 20 hours to stop for two seconds in front of the in front of the body to pay their respects. And I remember the United Airlines crew, the stewardess, were all saying, we're going to do it. I don't care. And they, were saying, they weren't even Catholic. They said, I don't care if it takes 15, 17 hours. I'm going to stand in line. This was a great man who affected my life deeply. And I felt so bad because I was only there for two days. I was exhausted. I just got on the plane. But I owe a huge debt of gratitude to Cardinal Pell because we ran into Cardinal Pell. And he says, oh, I'll get you in. And so he took us right up. And Bill Clinton and George Bush had just left the Purdue. I don't know if you remember that. And so Cardinal Pell took us up and said, go ahead and kneel there. And so we knelt there. And I took out my rosary. I said an entire rosary. And I just finished the St. Michael prayer. And then some guy came up and said, oh, you need to move on. I said, not a problem. <laughs> Unbelievable. But that's the way he affected people in the most profound way. In a certain sense, the entire world was there at the funeral. It's estimated there were 3 million people there. But they said on television worldwide, 4 billion people watched the funeral. Imagine, 4 billion people were affected enough, cared enough, that they wanted to turn the television on and watch the funeral. His was an aggressively evangelical papacy, which made use of the media and placed the church at the center stage in the service of freedom and truth. 
But if you look at his life, it's almost impossible to imagine a more incredible life of a man who God wanted to acknowledge as a saint. Remember, he lost his mother at the age of 10. Now, losing your mother at any time when you're a kid is a horrible thing. But at 10, right on the threshold of adolescence, and he wasn't there for his mother's death, he was devastated by that. And as a matter of fact, he missed the death of every one of his family. It killed him, all right? Eventually, he lost his older brother, who was working as a doctor and contracted a disease and died in a hospital, missed that. And then even living with his own father, uh, he had to go off and work the quarry, came back, and his father died when he was away. And he was so upset that the woman who was at the house trying to help out said he just knelt on the floor by his father's body and cried and wept throughout the entire night. I mean, from about 8 at night all the way till the next morning, never left his father's side. That type of depth in his person, but that type of, of agony. And he said in one of his books, he says, at that moment, I was left completely and totally alone in this world. He had no one. And of course, this is in the midst of the Nazi whore in Poland during the Second World War. And that Second World War and the Nazi oppression, he described as humiliation at the hands of evil. That's what he talked about. But dealing with that type of humiliation with no support. It led him to discover his vocation. He entered a seminary, as you know. He was ordained a priest in 1946. And then they sent him to Rome to study, where he studied for two years till 1948, got his doctorate. He was then made a bishop by Pius XII at 1958 at the age of 38. He's only a 38-year-old man, and he's already been noticed in Rome and has been made a bishop. Eventually, after that, he was raised to the Sacred College of Cardinals by Paul VI in 1967 at the age of 47. So at 47, that seems like a long time ago to me, at 47, he's made a cardinal. I mean, that's amazing. And then elected sovereign pontiff in 1978 at the age of 58. We've got to realize how old Pope Benedict was and how old Pope Francis was. JP II was 58. I remember the evening I was there, October 16, 1978, when he was elected. It was incredible. It was the feast of St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, and he emerged, and when he stepped out, what a man. A lot of people, young people, remember sort of the older, very frail. I remember this magnificent, strong man standing out on the thing, you know, with the hands waved, and, you know, there was no sense, habemos papam, we've, we've got a pope. It was an amazing thing, and when his name was announced, there was this audible gap in St. Peter's Square uh, because we had been waiting all this time and the moon was rising. It was a beautiful October night over Castle San Angelo. And then they mentioned Carlo Tio Cardinale da Polonia and everyone went, oh, there's this collective gas silence for about five seconds and then bada, 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 bada. and everyone started talking because everyone realized this is a historic moment. This is the first non-Italian pope in 455 years. And he was from behind the Iron Curtain. To confess, honestly, my first thought, they've elected a communist. What's going on? <laughs> I, mean, I didn't know. I had no idea who Carol Wojtyla was. Amazing. But when he stepped out there, uh, who would have thought that for the next nearly 27 years, he was going to be the pope? But to appreciate the magnitude of what he had achieved, remember the times. This is the 60s. This is the 70s. This was time of rebellion. This was a time of social chaos dominating world history. 
I remember we went back for the Pope's Silver Jubilee after on his 25th year in his pontificate. And we had lunch in the Borg. We were all excited because it was on October 17th. He was going to be in the square. I was going to be there with my son, just like I was there with my daughter. And so just think, 25 years, he's still Pope, and you're there again. And so we're having lunch, and Dr. Heisler, who was there with us, we're all having lunch together, about 12 of us, he said, let's think about this. We're going to this Mass tonight. And he said, everyone say, how did this Pope affect you? And so everyone thought for about two minutes while you're having a great pasta and bruschetta, you know. And then one by one, everyone said something. Some said, you know, it was theology of the body, World Youth Days, whatever. But the amazing thing is there were 12 completely different answers. Nobody said the same thing. And we went around the table a second time. And again, there was no repetition. Everybody said something different about how they were affected by him. He visited every inhabited continent, made 104 trips outside of Italy, 104 times got on a plane and flew off somewhere, 146 trips inside Italy. I mean, he lived the Petrine ministry, uh, but also the Pauline ministry of that concern for all the churches. And of course, one of the great experiences was his great trip back to his home country of Poland in 1979. If you've seen that, you know, was it, was it nine days or seven days? Was it seven days that changed the world? I mean, when you realize that what he, the effect he had on the Polish people, unbelievable, unbelievable. It started that whole revolution. That people was so deeply impressed by his spirit. You might remember there was a famous story, you know, Father Popolesko? was out there speaking about freedom and everything. He was kidnapped by the government and was brutally tortured and was thrown in the river. They found the body and it was, you could just see the poor man had been tortured horribly. And then the people took to the streets. The government was terrified what was going to happen. But remember, the Polish people took to the streets chanting over and over. You know what they chanted? We forgive. We forgive. We forgive. How can you fight that? How can you stop? That's inconceivable without John Paul II and the impact that that man had on his native country. Think of his trips to Mexico, Ireland, United States, Africa, Asia, Latin America, India, Australia, even Oceania. Nothing escaped his attention. If there was a desire to proclaim the gospel and to receive it, he went there. Nor should we forget when we're talking about his greatness on May 13th, the Fatima Day, 1981, he shed his blood for Jesus Christ. A lot of people don't say this. He's a confessor, right? He shed his blood for Jesus Christ, shot by an assassin, a miraculous survival. I mean, the man was only 10 feet away, fired five shots at point-blank range, and the doctor said if the one bullet that hit the abdomen was one, cent, one millimeter closer, it would have tore his... Um, main artery in his stomach, he would have bled to death because they got him, didn't get him to the hospital. The guy took the wrong turn, and he would have just bled to death on the way. A miracle. That's why he took that bullet after the surgery the doctors gave it to him, and he took it to Fatima and put it in the crown, and that's where it sits in the crown of the Blessed Mother at the shrine of Fatima, and thanking her for saving his life. I heard that there was a little baby that had like a little Fatima image on, and so when he saw that, he moved forward. Miss miss, miss, into the hand, into the stomach. And so that's another reason why he made the connection. It was Our Lady of Fatima's day, but also special intervention on, on her part. But then again, who could ever think that this man would then go and visit in prison the man who tried to kill him and forgive him? 
I mean, amazing example. I mean, you can't make that. If you were going to do a movie of this guy's life, no one would believe you. Say, well, that's mythical. That type of stuff doesn't really happen. Um, he was the chief pastor of the Church of Rome. And every Sunday, he went to visit a Roman parish. He visited, there are 333 parishes in the city of Rome. And he visited 317. How's that for a pastor setting an example? Every Sunday when he was there, going to see a parish church because he was the bishop of Rome and he wanted to know his flock. You wonder where St. Pope Francis gets that idea that the shepherd should smell like the sheep and should know his sheep, all right? We have to remember who appointed Bergoglio cardinal and brought him out of ambiguity to make him the cardinal archbishop of Buenos Aires. That was John Paul. I don't get into this discontinuity between pontificates at all, by the way. Seems to me you cannot understand uh, John Paul unless you understand Paul VI, you understand John Paul I, John Paul II, John Paul II to Benedict, and Benedict to Francis. There is a beautiful continuity in these pontificates and a development of teaching, as we will see. Let's remember the great holy year of redemption. How many of you have memories of the Jubilee year? Okay, 15 years ago, all right. Many, many people were deeply affected by that. Uh, proclamation of the year of the rosary, where we got the luminous mysteries, the year of the Eucharist, all of these things, theology of the body, luminous mysteries of the rosary, which really brought back the rosary as a Christocentric, it's a Marian prayer, of course, but it's deeply Christocentric, right? Because the core of every Hail Mary is the holy name of Jesus, right? Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Because Mary's taken you by the hand. That's the Irish expression. The five decades are Mary's five fingers. And when you say your rosary, you're putting your hand in Mary's hand. And Mary takes you to her son. And that's why blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, conceived in your womb. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, sanctifying John the Baptist, all right? Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, born at Bethlehem. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, presented at the temple. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, teaching in the temple. You get my point? Everything is Jesus. That's why Mary's soul magnifies the Lord. Her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. Everything for Jesus, all right? Then you think of some of the things that he did, 147 beatifications, 51 canonizations. And one of my favorite things he did, he made St. Therese, who wrote a few letters, a few prayers, and one book, Doctor of the Church. That is so awesome. And I think I've read that book maybe 20 times. And every time I read it, I think I'm a better man for having read it. So I want you to read Novo Millenniuente, but also take a look at Story of a Soul. Fabulous book little flower and he knew the power of that teaching of the little way. Encyclicals, Redemptor Hominis, Ecclesia Eucharistia, uh, those 14 encyclicals. Think of what Evangelum Vitae meant to the church. Uh, Fides et Ratio, Veritati Splendor. 45 apostolic letters, including Dies Domini on Sunday, Salvifici Dolores on suffering, the one we're going to talk about tonight, Novo Millennio Innuente. And, of course, Ex Corde Ecclesiae, which is very important to me as a college president, the identity of a Catholic university and a Catholic college. And, of course, in all of these things, he gave an authoritative hermeneutic of what was really meant 
by the Second Vatican Council, giving us a proper understanding in a context of that council within tradition. He also promulgated a new code of canon law. That in itself is a huge achievement in any pontificate, to revise and update and promulgate the law of the church. And then also a universal catechism of the Catholic Church, where the tradition was incorporated into the teaching of the council. Then he's also a best-selling author, Crossing the Threshold of Hope, Gift and Mystery in 1996, Roman Triptych, Rise, Let Us Be on Our Way, Memory and Identity, published just before his death. If you haven't read any of those books, read them. They are so beautiful and give you such an insight into who he is. Throughout his life, heroically calling for the new evangelization. And if you think about it, how many of us here in this room and how many in our family and people who know were touched by the spiritual power of this man. Another thing most people don't know is he brought contemplative nuns to the Vatican. In the little place where Benedict is living right now, that was turned into a convent, and he put contemplative nuns there praying day and night before the Blessed Sacrament. Every five years they shift out. You had poor Clares, you had Carmelites, I'm not sure who's there now with Benedict, but he is the one who started that, who started Adoration of the Eucharist in St. Peter's, who revived Pius IX's traditional Eucharistic procession on the Feast of Corpus Christi. It had stopped with Pius IX. He brought it back, taking the faith to the streets, marching from John Lateran down Via Marulana, all the way to Mary Majors, bringing Christ the King and manifesting that faith in a public way. His great love for St. Thomas Aquinas. I mean, he was a Thomist. I mean, you need to know that in case you... I know he was a phenomenologist, and he used phenomenology, but his whole philosophic metaphysics, the way he brought, uh, the thought he brought to bear, was very much in line with the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas. And in a special way, his love for kids his love for young people. And young people knew that he loved them. That's why I met up at Toronto. He's sitting up there huddled over, drooling out of his mouth. And he just says, you know, Jesus Christ loves you. And these kids are just moved. I mean, this isn't MTV or anything, but it's the voice of someone who has suffered, but someone who's authentic, someone who's there because he loves them. And they responded to that. What a beautiful, beautiful moment. And then I also have to thank him at the end of his life, he taught us how to age and how to die. The dignity of the human person, uh, how important that really was. He wasn't afraid to show his fragility, even though it was painful for me to watch sometimes because I remembered him in his youth. But I think that was a great preparation for me. And now as I look at my own father, my own father is 91, still going strong, but he's 91. But I oftentimes think of John Paul when I go and visit with him. He's still living on his own. He's still strong, but you know, he's frail. But uh, you realize the dignity of the person, it's what you, it's who you are, not what you can do that makes you really important, you know? Everyone has their dignity. And I think that's what he taught us. And so we really show that even lifted up on the cross, there is still dignity to the human person. And of course, I remember in the 60s how Marian devotion was almost completely put away from the church, almost completely put away. And this man almost single-handedly remembers motto, totus tuus, all yours, from Louis Marie de Montfort, total consecration of Mary. He had such intense love for the Blessed Mother that there was a flowering of Marian piety all over the Catholic world, back at Guadalupe, at Lourdes, at Chestahova, at Nock, wherever you went, he always made a point of expressing his Marian devotion. And remember that last time he appeared at his window when he couldn't talk? But even then, I just say, you just love the man, that he would even show himself in that 
condition. And his death was that of a saint. Even the timing of his death, you know, the octave of Easter, the vigil of Divine Mercy Sunday, I mean, could you orchestrate it in any better way? And that's one of the reasons why he should be remembered as John Paul the Great and the fact that he has been canonized. What we know about John Paul is he is much closer to us now than he was when he was Pope, right? He's much closer to us now than he was as a pope. He's in heaven. He's beholding the beatific vision, and he's making intercession for us. And we should be asking his help and his assistance. And since he is such a great saint, we need to take a close look. Now, let's talk a little bit about the document, Novo Millennio Innuente. And I think it's so important because I don't think you can really understand Benedict's pontificate. I don't think we can really understand Pope Francis's pontificate and what he's trying to do unless we go out and look at this document because he reflects on what happened in the Jubilee year. And in this document, he sets the trajectory for the new millennium. This is where we need to go as a church. And given the fact that he's a saint, I think someday he probably will also be a doctor of the church, be declared a doctor of the church. We should look at what he has to say. Now, the document, Novo Millennium Uente, at the beginning of the new millennium, was issued on the Feast of the Epiphany in the year 2001. And in this, he reflects deeply upon the profound experience of the Jubilee year. And then after that, talks about where do we go from here after we've had all of these great experiences. Now, there was a great term that he used that has been used many, many times, many, many homilies. Duke and Altum. How many of you heard of Duke and Altum before? All right, yeah put out into the deep. It's a passage taken from the Gospel of Luke where the Lord tells people, Peter, to go out in his boat and put out into the deep for a catch. And uh, that always stuck in my mind. I remember the Jubilee year, we made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and one of my most profound memories was the boat ride on the Sea of Tiberias and thinking, gosh, this is the exact spot where this happened. And then we put in at the spot where Peter was, had to make his triple affirmation, do you love me more? And, I do. and the amazing thing was that the local fishermen told us this is still, to this day, the best place to fish in the morning if you want to catch fish. And so you will still see fishermen go to that spot. Again, the historicity of the gospel is going there. And they have a fish in the Sea of Tiberias called the St. Peter's San Pedro. It is the ugliest fish I've ever seen in my life. It tasted fine, but it had all these little spikes on it and everything. He said, this is really Piesce di San Pietro. But we had, it was wonderful. But um, putting out into the deep, and that was a big theme that he wanted to talk about. And so the whole purpose of the Jubilee year was to meet Christ, was to encounter Christ. Does that sound kind of familiar? Does that kind of sound contemporary? Have you heard any recent popes say, talk about encountering Christ? Okay, that's not new. That's not new. He's drawing from the great patrimony of papal teaching, meeting with Christ, the great legacy of the Jubilee year. Now, he talks about all the great things that happened in the Jubilee year, from the huge way of the cross at the Colosseum, the world gathering of families, the World Youth Day in Rome, all of these different things that happened. Uh, the special Jubilee days for politicians, journalists, for the military, sports figures, university teachers, handicapped. Everyone had a day, and there were people flocking constantly to Rome and making pilgrimages 
celebrating that day. Jubilee Day with prisoners, where he made a visit to a number of prisons. Everyone kind of went crazy. Pope Francis went to a prison. Well, Pope Benedict, I, I love Pope Francis, but Pope Benedict went to the exact same prison. John Paul went to that prison in multiple, multiple times, all right? I'm sorry that the world press wasn't paying attention. Maybe they should have paid attention. But this is very much in line, very much in keeping. And one of the great joys, I'm sure, of Pope Francis's pontificate was he was able to canonize John Paul. But all of these great experiences. But in this document, the Pope brings us back and wants us to think about contemplating the face of Christ to look at the face of Christ and how significant that is for us and how Jesus wants us to look at his face and to see his face and to reflect on his face. Because remember one of that great scene at the Last Supper in John's Gospel when Philip is saying, hey, show us the Father and that's enough for us. And then he looks at him and says, Philip, have I been with you all this time and still you do not know. He who sees me sees the Father sees the Father. So looking at the face of Christ, contemplating the face of Christ, so important for us. I don't know if I shared with this with you before, but I had a, a beautiful experience when I went to the little town of Annecy, which is in France. It's where Francis de Sales is buried, along with St. James Francis de Chantal. I have a great devotion to Francis de Sales' introduction to devout life. And so we went there on a visit, and it was 3 o'clock, and we, the tombs were there. We got right in the church, beautiful Gothic church up overlooking the French Alps. And we're looking at the, at, there's this beautiful apse mosaic. It's three o'clock, I said, oh, we should say the Divine Mercy Chaplet. Now, when I first learned the Divine Mercy Chaplet, I always had a temptation, and I kind of gave in to the temptation, of saying, for the sake of your sorrowful passion, have mercy on, because I like talking to Jesus, all right? For the sake of your sorrowful passion, have mercy on us, invoking his heart. But of course, the Divine Mercy Chaplet is really more accurately described as directed to ad patrem. It's directed to the Father. For the sake of his sorrowful passion, have mercy on us. But there was this incredible grace tied into contemplating the face, where there was this beautiful apse mosaic of Christ crucified. And he had this look of great sorrow but serenity Holy Spirit above him, but then above him the artist put the Father, and the Father had the exact same face as Jesus. And that was the greatest Divine Mercy Chaplet I think I ever said in my life. I got it. Of course, any father who was to see his son joyfully and willingly go through this horrible suffering and death, he would be totally engaged in that. All right? So the Father is the source of mercy because the Father is sent, I'm sorry, the Son is actually sent by the Father. So he wants us to look at his face and to contemplate um, his face. And it was very important for him that we spend and take the time to do this. And he was very much concerned about complacency in the church. We just had the Jubilee, the Jubilee's over, so let's all get complacent again. Does that sound familiar? Is there any pope that is a little concerned about the church being a little complacent, not really actively engaged? This, okay, I'm telling you, Pope Francis lived this document. You want to understand Pope Francis and Pope Benedict? Read the document. Contemplate the face of Christ. Encounter Christ. Uh, we got to avoid complacency. The Holy Father goes back to Luke's gospel and says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
We look back to see the grace, but it's in order to go forward. We are always moving forward. There is work to be done. And so he says that it's important, however, to avoid a type of restlessness because he wants us to contemplate the face of Christ. And in order to contemplate the face of Christ, what do you have to do? You have to stop. You have to spend time with him. In one of his big concerns he has in the modern world, he says there is a great temptation, you know, that we try to do, do, do. And by doing, that's how we justify. Oh, I do this for a living. This is my job. This is my work. This is who I am. All right? No, he says it's far more important that we try to be rather than to do. And that means there has to be a moment where you stop and you are silent and you spend time with him. Because if there's going to be any pastoral activity, if it's going to be successful, it has to come from Christ, right? That's why in every gospel, what's the first word that Christ says? Come, come and see, come follow me, all right? What's the last word? Go, go out into the world, make disciples of all nations. You can't go into the world, you can't have any successful pastoral plan at all unless you first come to him and learn of him because he's meek and humble of heart and imbibe those virtues and try to live that. So he wants us to really think seriously about the con and contemplate the son's face, the face of the suffering Christ, the face of Christ in his passion, but also the face of the glorified and risen Christ. And so when he gets into part two of this beautiful document, he has this beautiful expression, starting afresh from Christ. And you remember his powerful phrases, how he had this way of, this gift of just saying, you know, be not afraid, non abiata paura, be not afraid, open wide the doors to Christ. Don't be timid, open wide the doors to Christ. And so he has this idea in part two, which he titles, starting afresh from Christ. It doesn't matter how old are you are, in the spiritual life, every day is a new day. Every day you can grow in holiness. Every day you can start new. There's no such thing as it's I'm over, it's done with. Doesn't matter how old you are, you can start afresh from Christ. Deepen that relationship. Grow in holiness. I remember when I used to serve as a little kid the old mass, the extraordinary form as we call it now. And I remember the old priest coming out, ad deum qui letificat, juventutum meum. This old priest could hardly walk, you know, to the God who gives joy to my youth, all right? It doesn't matter how old you are because with the Lord you are always young. And so here's John Paul late in his life saying, we need to go forward. We need to start afresh from Christ. And that's what he really wants us to do. And he says, if we imitate Christ, we're going to be able to transform history. We can change history by living the life of grace. And so what he says in this document, he says, the program I'm proposing, he says, the program is for all times. It's our program for the third millennium to bring gospel values to bear on society and culture. That's what we need to do. Do we need to impact culture? Yes. Do we need to impact society? Is there some pope who's been doing a lot of talk about going to the highways and byways and not being comfortable, but getting out there and really talking to people and meeting with people? I think he has a great experience of Catholic evangelization. We're the only people that take Mark chapter 1, verse 33 to heart, where Jesus says, see that you tell no one. <laughs> 
that, that's our great missionary outreach. No, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, Protestants will share Jesus all the time. We, someone talks and we just kind of like, oh, whatever, you know. <laughs> but there's so many times at the water cooler, on the bus, or the store, where it can be a simple thing like, God bless you. Instead of having, have a nice day, say, have a good day and may God bless you. Just bring God up. You'll be amazed how sometimes in the frozen foods, I'm doing a lot of that now. <laughs> Had frozen pizza for dinner tonight. Anyway, um, a lot of times you'll find that conversations you'll get into, oh, thank you so much. Do you believe in God? Are you Christian? And then you'll have an opportunity, yeah, I'm a Catholic Christian. And you can just, it doesn't have to be standing on a street court preaching, but there's so many opportunities if we take his words to heart, be not afraid, open wide the doors to Christ. And be like Andrew, who go, you know, John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, starts following him. Jesus, what are you seeking? Great question, what are you seeking? Where are you staying? And then he comes and he stays with him. And then after spending one day with him, he's out finding his brother Simon, Mr. Sanguine, and saying, we found him. We found the Messiah. You've got to come meet him. And you want to share that with him. It's like when you see a great movie or hear a beautiful piece of music. What do you want to do with that movie or that music or the book? You want to share it, okay? We really encounter Christ, really encounter Christ. You want to share him. You want to communicate him, give him to others that you know and families. And especially some of you are older like me now. I mean, one of the big things is being a grandparent. And, you know, there's a lot of brokenness in so many families and so many woundings. And there are so many opportunities where we as Catholic Christians can really help families and help heal brokenness in families where children are suffering, little kids are suffering because there's a divorce or there's a separation. Grandparents have taken on a far greater significance now than probably at any time in history because of the brokenness of our culture and society. So I urge you to think of ways in which you might be able to share the Lord or share the faith with some of the little kids or some of the children that are broken and are struggling uh, at this time. So what's the big thing? What's the pastoral plan? It's not going to surprise you. It's nothing new. What does John Paul say? Holiness. Pastoral plan is holiness. Everyone is called to be a saint. Everyone, every lay person. He quotes from Lumen Gentium number 40. All the Christian faithful of whatever state or rank are called to the fullness of the Christian life and the perfection of charity. That means love of God and love of neighbor. Everyone is called to be a saint. As one great French author said, the one tragedy in life is not to be a saint. Now, our secular world doesn't talk that way, doesn't think that way, but bottom line, that is the ultimate reality. That is the ultimate truth. And I can say that absolutely of every single person in this room, every one of you, me included, we are called, we are challenged by him to become the saint we are supposed to be. Everybody is. Every single one of us. And so what he says is, going back to Vatican II, Lumen Gentium, the universal call to holiness. What's the pastoral plan in the new millennium? Get Catholics to live their faith, to take holiness seriously and to strive for it. If we're going to move forward to the new springtime, all Christians have to take this to heart. And he goes on, he says, none of us can settle for a life of mediocrity or, quote, a minimalist ethic and shallow religiosity. As if we're, we're Catholics because we go to Mass on Sunday and that's it. All right? I'm all for Mass on Sunday. Mass on Sunday is great. Yeah, i got to do that. That's kind of the scenic one not. But if that's all we're doing, 
okay? That's a problem. And that's not all you're doing. You wouldn't be here unless you were more really seriously trying to live your faith. And that's beautiful. But then we've got to get others. Wouldn't it be great if at the next Institute of Catholic Culture, everyone here decided to bring a friend? Sabatini, you can pay me later. Anyway. <laughs> no, but if everybody here decided to bring one friend, maybe a child, maybe a young person, maybe a neighbor, maybe somebody, you know, at the parish, kind of, sort of, but don't know real, hey, this is going on. Would you want to go? The wine's good. <laughs> whatever, whatever the case might be. The oatmeal cookies, over the top. Whatever it might be. But reaching out to someone, seeing if you can have them come and be part of that. Remembering Matthew's gospel, the, the Pope calls this, where Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that's something we can't do on our own, but with God's grace and being open to his grace, we can grow in holiness and we can achieve a type of perfection in this life that mirrors the Heavenly Father so that when they see you, they want to be like you because there's something different about you. If we just blend in and we're just like everybody else, we're not living our faith properly. Everyone is called to that. And so again, he says, all Christians have to strive for what he calls the high standard of perfection and training and holiness, and what he calls the high standard of ordinary Christian living. You know, as the culture declines this way, you just try to live an ordinary Christian life, you're going to look heroic. You're also going to look whacked. <laughs> You know what I mean? As, as things continue to slip, you know? But everyone is called to the high standard, that's his word, the high standard of ordinary Christian living. Isn't that beautiful? And so he says, holiness is not going to happen. This is the second point. Holiness is the basic plan. Second point, this is not going to happen unless we become a people of deep prayer. Aristotle says, friendship demands proximity. If you're not close, a friendship's going to die, okay? If we really love the Lord, we need to talk to him all the time. I have a group of high school kids we're teaching out at Christendom right now, and they get this. Because they say when you really get goo goo ga, ga love, they know what that is, you know? You're all kind of, oh, I can't I think about him all the time. I mean, what are you doing? They're texting all the time which I can't stand, but they're texting all the time. They're in constant communication, or they're on their cell phone all the time talking. Sometimes they'll talk for an hour on the cell phone. They say, what are you talking about? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> but it really doesn't matter because they're being together. If we love the Lord, if we want the relationship to blossom, we have to spend time with them. And that means even being willing to spend time in silence, which can be awkward for us. Because most of the time in the spiritual life, when we're praying, what's the problem? We're doing all the talking, right? Isn't that true? We're always talking, talking, talking. We have to be able to spend some time to listen to what he's saying. Like if you're taking your Bible, instead of zipping, I'm going to read a chapter every day. Instead of reading a whole chapter, read two verses. Do Alexio Divina and just stop and think about that and wait and see. And you'll be amazed how if you take the time just to let the word come into you. And this is what John Paul wants you to do in your prayer take the word inside you, you'll be amazed that all of a sudden you'll start to think about this or you will hear this. But see, so many times he's always trying to communicate with us, but our receiver is not tuned to the right channel because we're always living on the outside, not on the inside. You know, when you tune the receiver, you get it right to the 92.5. Sorry, Wink FM. But anyway, you get it or to the classical station, if you can endure NPR news. You get it to the classical station, and then all of a sudden, ah, oh, you're hearing everything. But so much we're living on the outside, we don't 
listen in silence. And so we've got to get our tuner set right where we're willing to spend some time in silence to read just maybe two verses and stop. And if you wait on him, because he's a great lover, he doesn't impose, he will speak to you. He will speak to you. And he'll give you good inspirations. Because sometimes, oh, he seems so far away, I don't really sense that he's close to me. Look it, you wouldn't be here tonight. You would not be listening to me. You wouldn't be going to Mass. You wouldn't be saying a rosary. You wouldn't be saying a Divine Mercy Chaplet unless he was giving you the grace to do it. The only way your, your will is cooperating is that grace is given, which means what? You're swimming in a sea of grace all the time. He's constantly giving you grace, but we're just so out of touch that we're just, oh, I guess I'll do my rosary now. <laughs> you know, well, where did that come from? What gives you the strength to say the rosary, the My Mercy Chaplet, or to get them to do Mass, or to go to Eucharist Adoration? He's around you all the time. You need to become aware of His presence. So what John Paul says, it's holiness, it is prayer. We have to become a people of deep, deep prayer. And he says, the Christian life is distinguished above all by the art of prayer. A Christian should be distinguished by the art of prayer. People should know, not to do it in a showy way, but that we pray. We pray all the time, not just at Mass, but in the car, when we are driving. We're always having a conversation with Him because He's always around us. So the more sensitive we are, the more we begin to practice the presence of God and become aware of His presence in our life, the more we will pray, all right? And so His prayer offered through the Holy Spirit should lead our contemplation to rest this is, quote, rest filially within the Father's heart. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Resting within the Father's heart. Because why? We're his child. You're his child. Through your baptism, you have the divine life. You are adopted. You have the power of becoming. You are a son of God or a daughter of God. Rest on the Father's heart. And in so many instances, whether our broken relationships with men or with fathers, the idea of a loving Heavenly Father with whom you can turn to can be very healing and very, very helpful, even psychologically. And then the Pope even goes so far to speak about the need, once again, for every Christian in his heart to truly fall in love. Now, sometimes men get a little uncomfortable with that, but, you know, it's really true. We need to fall in love with our Lord. Most Catholics in our country, I believe, very sadly, are living in what we could probably call, because they're in a covenant relationship, they're living in a loveless marriage. They're Catholic. They go to Mass, but there's no love. You know what I mean? They go and there's duty, you know? and they're doing the right thing, and that's a good thing. But there's not a love. You need to fall in love, all right? You need to fall in love with Him. Not an idea, not a concept, not an abstract reflection on liturgy or anything like that. We need to fall in love with Him, and that's what the Pope calls us to. And this is especially important for everybody because this education in prayer is so important. He encourages recitation of the Divine Office, or Lexio Divina, the prayerful reading of Scripture, and talks about the dignity and the vocation. Now, another thing he was so big on, and he's really big on in this letter, and I want to go back to this because it may sound like I'm downplaying Sunday. I'm not. He says, Sunday Eucharist. 
Sunday Mass. Dies Domini, the Lord's Day. He spent a whole apostolic letter devoted just to Sunday. And he basically says, you want to win the culture war? Everyone wants to win the culture war? Bring our young people back, help people to be moral, fight abortion, defend marriage. He says, you want to win the culture war? You will never, he says, win the culture war unless you win back the Lord's Day. We start keeping Sunday again. How many times I get so depressed when I see it, open Sundays, open seven days a week. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like the, the French Revolution, what was their big goal? Destroy Sunday. They went to a nine-day week. The Soviet Union, the communists, tried to destroy Sunday because they know Sunday is the lifeblood of the Christian. Now, when you wake up and it's Sunday, this is great. It's the Lord's day. This is a day specially dedicated to Him. And if you make it His day, it'll be the best day of the week in your life, you know? This is going to be the best day of my life. All right, so anyway, but it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing that day. And so he really wants this to be a day where the people of God come together to celebrate the Eucharist because it's the resurrection. The resurrection is the fulcrum of history. And so if we can get back to making Sunday that day, and that may mean sacrifice. You know, it used to be there would be all sorts of blue laws, you know. It used to be you didn't shop on Sunday. I think consumerism, Pope Francis had talked about this, Pope Benedict talked about it, guess what else? John Paul talked about it. It is a problem. Maybe there should be one day a week where you don't go to the store. It used to be that way. Do the shopping on Saturday. Oh, it's inconvenient. But one day, no, I'm not going to the mall. No, I'm not going to go to the grocery store. I'm not going to do it. There's one day, I'm not going to do it. Maybe even say, I'm not going to use my smartphone for one day. I'm not going to use my iPad for one day. That sounds really challenging to <laughs> But you know, I mean, think whatever it is that, what can you do that can break out of the routine, that can really give this and make this a special day? Sunday, so important for him. Th that was the third thing, Sunday. The fourth thing, a newer appreciation of the sacrament of reconciliation. There's no doubt there was a crisis of confession. People had stopped going to confession. As Fulton Sheen once said, it used to be that only Catholics believed in the Immaculate Conception. Now everybody believes they're immaculately conceived. You know? <laughs> Nobody believes in sin anymore. And since no one believes in sin anymore, that's why Christ is fading from consciousness. Because if there's no sin, there's no need for a savior, right? That's when I hear people saying, we're lapsing back into paganism. I wish we were. <laughs> because the pagans knew they were sinners. They knew they were sinners. And that's why when they heard the gospel preached, what do they call it? Evangelion. Good news. This is incredible. I just stole. I just murdered. I just gossiped. I just fornicated. I just committed adultery. You're telling me there's a way out of my personal hell that I can be forgiven that? That's the sacrament of confession. All right. And boy, do we take that sacrament for granted. What a powerful, powerful gift. Every time that priest raises his hand, the blood of Christ giving you absolution is just pouring all over you. And that's why preparing properly and then spending time before and after the sacrament to celebrate it worthily. Don't run in in one minute, give your little 10-minute lawn, you know, your 10-minute, sorry, okay, your, your two-minute laundry list, and then go out, say a quick prayer, and then go. Spend time to allow that grace. And then after you go to confession, invoke the grace from that confession. Because I'm sure you know what it's like. The very next day, the very things you confess, you are going to be tempted to do those very same things again. Invoke Lord Jesus Christ through the grace of the confession that I gave with you. Strengthen me. 
because it's such a great opportunity. You know, it was really interesting. St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, who had the great visions of the Sacred Heart, Fascinating story. Mother Superior did not believe she was really getting this. So she said to St. Margaret Mary, well, the next time you see Jesus, you ask him what I said in my last confession. So Margaret Mary said, okay, I will. And so Christ appeared to her and says, I'm, I'm suffering terribly. Mother Superior is not believing that you're really speaking to me. And so she asked me to ask you what she said in her last confession. And Jesus just sort of looked at her with this benign, beautiful, loving smile and said, oh, I don't remember. <laughs> That's quite a sacrament. That's quite a sacrament. In other words, you're just going into the arms of someone who loves you infinitely and wants to do nothing more than forgive you and show you mercy. That's a great thing. So, confession. Sunday Eucharist, confession. Then to go back to something a little more philosophic, the fifth point he wants to emphasize is the primacy of grace. The primacy of grace. You notice everything he's talked about so far, holiness, prayer, Eucharist, confession, they all have to deal with grace, right? The primacy of grace. That's the one thing the secular world never talks about, never makes it in the paper. But Christianity, I taught world religions for seven years. One of the things that makes Christianity a unique in the world religion is that it is a religion of grace. There is a whole supernatural order and that there is constantly being a breakthrough of divine life entering into time, entering into history in a concrete way through the sacraments and through the life of prayer, the primacy of grace. And we need to be attached and recognize our need for grace because, as Jesus said, the Pope quotes this from John 15, 5, without me, you can do nothing, nothing. But with him, we can do everything. And so the Pope calls us to that. So then he says, listen to the word. Listen to the word. He really wants us to be serious about scripture. That's why I love Deacon Sabatino, always talking about bring your Bible. Spend time reading it prayerfully. John Paul, that's point number six. Listen to the word. Wonderful priest out with us at Christendom. I don't think you'd be upset if I told you this. He's going to be our chaplain over at Column Kill Institute, Father Mark Byrne. Has a tradition where before he goes to bed at night, he sits out and looks at the lectionary and he reads all of the readings from Mass the next day. And then he says, I just take that to my heart and then I go to sleep. And he says, it's amazing the impact that that has on his sleep. And then after like sleeping with the gospel, the epistle and the psalm, he wakes up in the morning and then he writes his homily. It's like germinated, all right? You have to, we have to realize there is a power in that word. There is a supernatural power in that word that strengthens us and empowers us to live that. And so every family should have a Bible. Everyone should be reading God's word. And then the next thing that he talks about after listening to the word, proclaiming the word. If you really are prayerfully reading how, and he's affecting you, and you're really encountering, how can we keep that to ourselves, all right? How can we keep that to ourselves? It is something that we have to share. And he says it always has to be done, quote, with unswerving fidelity to the proclamation of the gospel and the tradition of the church. He says that is the new evangelization, and that's what he's talking about. In his final part, of this beautiful document, which I urge you to read, he entitles it Witness to Love, all right? And his big point there is the most compelling thing we can do is to manifest love to our brothers and sisters, 
because it's love that's really going to attract people. And witness to love, Deus Caritas Est, does that sound familiar? Pope Benedict, right? Everyone thought, I thought, oh, it's the prefect of Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Benedict's now the Pope. What will be the first document he'll write on? He'll write on the faith, of course. Nope. What's his first encyclical? Love. What's the next encyclical? Hope. What was his last encyclical? Faith. Right? Isn't that interesting? Why did he do that? Well, he does it because the thing that's going to draw people will not be us standing on the street corner proclaiming faith, faith, faith. It's going to be love and action. It's people doing things that are charitable. We'll see, you're different. It's not just about you. It's not just about me. It's about serving the Lord and serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the most compelling thing. That's why the world got John Paul II. Because he really sacrificed. He poured himself out. He gave of himself. Who would want to be seen on a camera drooling, you know, struggling to move? And yet he did that because he wanted to show them that there still is the dignity of the human person. Why did the world love Mother Teresa of Calcutta? Because they saw this incredible love. Like when that beautiful little nun, there's a famous story of the American businessman, went to visit Mother Teresa in Calcutta, and there was this little man who was all shriveled up, covered with leprosy, just smelling horribly, and he's ready to die, and, and Mother Teresa just bathing sores, and he hears Mother Teresa talking, this Jesus, is he like you? And Mother Teresa says, well, I try to be like him, and then he says, well, I want to be like, I want to be like him. I want him. I want him. And so he dies professing Jesus Christ. American businessman is so moved and can't believe it. And he doesn't, you know, sometimes you're awkward, you're embarrassed what to say, and he just sees her washing this, kind of cleaning the body, dead body, and laying it out in the smell and the horrible source and everything. He says, I wouldn't do that for a million bucks. And she just looked up and smiled and said, oh, neither would I. <laughs> so. Witness to love, living the faith. This is the great pastoral plan and the challenge for the new millennium. The beauty is it's nothing new, but it's very clear, it's very profound, and exactly what Benedict was saying, and it is exactly what Pope Francis is saying. And so what we need to do is take the teaching of this great saint to heart and begin to live it. Thank you for listening to me tonight. Now, I know uh, Novo Millennio Innovente was promulgated at the close of the Jubilee year, which I do recall, especially the logo with the five multicolored doves. Yes. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind uh, perhaps commenting on the opening of the Jubilee year and the purposes of its being called in the first place. Oh, sure. Be happy to. That's a, that's a very good question. Well, the whole Jubilee tradition goes back to the Old Testament. And that was something that was carried over within the Christian tradition. The very first jubilee year was called by Pope Boniface VIII in the year 1300. And then subsequently, every 50 years, there would be a jubilee. The Pope is the one who called this the Great Jubilee because it was the year 2000, two millennium. And since the second millennium had been characterized by the division of Christianity, his hope was, as we go for in the new springtime, there would be a great healing uh, in that year. So he called it uh, the Great Jubilee, and I think it was something that was very much on his heart and his mind, because even if you go back to read his very first encyclical 
uh, Redemptor Hominis, he mentions the Jubilee year right in the first encyclical that everything that he felt that he was called to do was to lead up to that Jubilee and to help guide the church into the new millennium. And so I think his great hope was that there would be a major renewal of the church and of society through the graces that were experienced in that Jubilee year. I do think that he thought in many ways he was successful in that. And if you read the document, you can clearly see he talks about the great fruits. I didn't have time to go into that, but the whole first part is like, this happened, this happened, this happened. And he speaks of all the great graces, many of which were hidden, which we did not see. But I think there's no doubt that when 9-11 happened, he was really shaken by that deeply. Uh, because he had been hoping for peace and, and things like that. And, of course, the world changed very dramatically on that day, I think. And they said that even the Pope, when he saw that, he was just glued to the television because he saw it just as a such a huge manifestation of evil. But I think he felt that it had been his personal calling to prepare the church for the Jubilee year. That's where he came on the idea of the three years of preparation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit you know, leading up to that. Is that, does that answer your question or is that not where you wanted me to go or? Okay, thank you. Hi, Dr. O'Donnell. Hi. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about maybe the cultural or historical context um, that prompted the writing of Novo Millennio Inuente. Okay, the historic, that prompted the writing of the document. Okay, well, <laughs> ever since you had the first Jubilee year proclaimed back in 1300, the Pope would always issue a papal bull proclaiming the Jubilee year and the Jubilee indulgence. So it was done in 1300, it was done in 1350, it was done in 1400, and every 50 years. There were also other special Jubilee years, like I think in 1933 you had the Jubilee year of redemption because that was the, you know, the year anniversary of Christ's death. But it's something that in order to promulgate the indulgence of the Jubilee year, which is a special action on the part of the church by which she reveals her mercy to her children, that she makes indulgences even greater and broader and, and even the, the timeline. I think for this thing, you had like up to, I think, two weeks to get an indulgence. And so this is something that was traditionally done. And so he's just very much acting within the tradition. Every pope that proclaimed a jubilee year, or even like a special marriage year, does it by a bull of indiction. And so this was the same type of thing that he was doing there. Okay, does that help? No, this is actually, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is the follow-up to the Holy Year. The actual Bull of Indiction, it, it's a, that's a different document. That's a different document. Do you remember what, shoot, it's not Novo it's, uh, oh, I forget what it's called. I'm sorry. This is sort of the, so this is the follow-up, but there, it's normal that you would give the document proclaiming the indulgence, and then you write the concluding document. That's what's been done throughout papal history. Okay. When is the next Jubilee year? <laughs> That's up to the Pope. <laughs> uh, the next one, probably for sure, would be uh, 2050. That's not to say that there couldn't be other special years proclaimed. You might find a Pope wanting to proclaim 2033, a special, another year of redemption. He might do that. Sometimes you've had Marian years that are proclaimed with special indulgences, but the tradition is every 50 years you would have a jubilee year. So the next big jubilee would be 2050. Good question, thank you. I, I was very struck by, the, by John Paul saying, contemplate the face of Christ because it didn't like ring like it didn't, 
I was not familiar with that kind of talk. Mm -hmm. Was it, does it go back and, I mean, was there a tradition of contemplating the face of Christ? Oh, yeah. Or is, was it something new and why particularly the face of Christ? No, I don't think it's new, but I think since he's focusing upon 2,000 years, the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, that contemplating the face brings us into the truth of the incarnation, that God now has a face, a face worth contemplating. But devotion to the holy face is something that goes way back in Christian tradition, probably all the way back to the Shroud of Turin, Veronica's Veil, that tradition. Remember, even Therese of Lisieux was of the holy face. And so the whole idea of the contemplating the face, that's something very deep. And there's also the image at Manetto, which Pope Benedict went and prayed in front of and things like that. So it's not something new. But I think he saw the face as emphasizing the reality of the incarnation, that God became man in Jesus Christ, and also emphasizing the dignity of the human person. You know, the face communicates so much of what we are, you know. And that's why uh, whenever there are assaults on human dignity, there's an effort to destroy the face or not to have the face, to reduce people to objects. If you know what I mean, I don't want to be overly explicit, but you know, the face communicates the beauty of the person. And I think that one of the great things that Christianity be gives to us by the fact of God becoming man in Jesus Christ is the incredible dignity of the human person. He has a face and he shares that with all of his brothers and sisters throughout the world. And so everyone has that. So by bringing us to contemplate the face of Christ, we're looking at his face, but we're seeing the Father, we're seeing Godhead, and we're seeing God and man united and the beautiful dignity and destiny we've been called to. Thank you very much, Dr. O'Donnell. Okay, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.